Thanks for joining us at Summit Church. No matter where you are at on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are excited to share God's word with you through this week's message. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And today, um, you know, I thought go big or go home. If you go knock it out, let's just go ahead and knock it out of the park. This is going to be my last time to preach in this year. And... Um, And I thought I'm going to preach from a big subject. I want to preach from the subject, the goal of life. The goal of life. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, we're going to figure out the goal of life today. Come on. We're going to figure it out. The goal of life. Of course, we are in a season uh, coming out of Christmas and going into a new year, 2020, where we are considering and contemplating goals and resolutions and things that we want to accomplish in 2020, maybe some things we did accomplish in 2019, or maybe some things that we hope to accomplish uh, that we didn't accomplish in 2019. And, um, you know, I think this is such an important topic, the goal of life, because I think even smaller goals that we make for ourselves and for our family are really a reflection and really speak to a bigger goal that we know, that we know is there in life. For example, some of us will make financial goals in 2020 to save more or to put more money towards something, whatever it is, because we believe life is more enjoyable or better when we have security and when we're able to, uh, you know, have fun in life and enjoy life. We'll make financial decisions. There's a means to an end. Some of us will make uh, physical goals for our body, and some of us are doing better than others, everybody. Uh, physical goals for our body, because we believe life is better when we're healthier and our body is a temple, and we'll make goals to grow in our career or whatever it is, and because life is giving us purpose, God has given us purpose in life, and you can't miss that as you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, one of the big takeaways that you come away with is that God has created us for purpose, amen? He's created us for purpose, and so we live that way, we make goals towards that, and so today I want to talk about the ultimate, the ultimate goal of life. I don't want to go to a story in Luke chapter 10 that most of you will probably be familiar with, um, but uh, maybe question, what does this have to do with the goal of life? And in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this lawyer, he comes to Jesus, and this lawyer is a religious person of the day. He, he associates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the C's up in that day. And this lawyer comes to Jesus, and uh, he doesn't come with any good purposes, He doesn't come with any pure motives, but he actually comes. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Put him to the test. And this is a common thing to do throughout the Gospels, where the religious leaders of the day, Pharisees and Sadducees, will come as as Jesus' influence is beginning to gain, as he's beginning to gain an audience that they will hope to put him to the test in hopes that he'll mess up. And hopes that he'll say something that he shouldn't say or ought not to say. And, of course, Jesus, because he's God, he never messes up. But in Luke chapter 10, it's no different with this lawyer. He comes to Jesus, and he asks him what I believe. And today I'm going to give you three points that lead to the goal of life, because we're going to figure it out today, everybody, the goal of life. I'm going to give you three points that lead to the goal of life. And here's the first one, is the greatest question. The greatest question, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him what I believe is the greatest question. Here's what he asks. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? Now, why would this be the greatest question? I'm assuming that if you got an opportunity to sit down with Jesus, 
that this question wouldn't even be in the top ten of the questions that you would ask him. Okay, I'm assuming that you would ask him maybe why something happened in your life. Why something went wrong or went right in your life. Why did Jesus say this? Or why did this person say this? What does this scripture mean? This may not even be in the top ten of the questions that you would ask Jesus. But I believe today that it is the greatest question that we could ever ask Jesus. And today I'm going to give you two reasons why. If you're taking notes, you can fill in the blanks on your bullets. And here's the first one. It's the greatest question because it's a question regarding meaning. It's a question regarding meaning. He comes to him and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal? Everybody say eternal. There's something about life being eternal that implies meaning. Something about life being eternal that implies meaning. Let me tell you what I mean. We live in a culture and a society today who is on a way to do away with meaning. To do away with values and principles and ultimately to do away with truth. That's, that's, that's the goal of a lot of society and kind of the culture that we live in today. You'll hear people say stuff like, well, you just live your truth and I'll live my truth. Anybody ever heard anybody say that before, especially maybe on TV? You live your truth, you live my truth, and, and you just believe what you want to believe and I believe what I want to believe, whatever it is. And, and of course, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that, but what it leads to is, is detrimental. Um, Hannah and I were just watching a movie on Christmas Eve. We're watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, everybody. She was crying. I'm very stable. I was good. <laughs> watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, and uh, on, in this movie, uh, there was a, um, a, a the, the, the main character, I won't go through the whole plot of the movie, but the main character believed that he was someone who nobody else believed he was. He was someone who nobody else believed he was, and and it's just a simple way of how, and again, you may not even disagree with what I'm about to say, because uh, it's really not even that disagreeable, but it's a simple way of how this truth begins to seep its way into our culture. He believed he was someone who nobody else believed he was, and one of the characters in the movie said about this guy, said, well, if that's who he thinks he is, who are we to say that he isn't? If that's who he thinks he is, who are we to say that he isn't? It's a simple way of seeping its way into our culture. And let me give an example of this, and in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary tagged this word as the international word of the year. There were a lot of words, everybody, in the English language. And this was the word, the international word of the year. And here it is, post-truth. The 2016 international word of the year, post-truth. Its name itself implies that we live in a society who has moved beyond the idea of truth, Right? We've moved beyond the idea of truth. Truth is for people back in the old days. They believed truth. They made truth statements. And, of course, as Christians, this goes against the very thing we believe. Because what did Jesus say? He says, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. We believe in truth. We believe there's an objective truth, eternal truth, universal truth. Listen to what, how Oxford Dictionary defined the word post-truth. I was interested to read this. It says, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping, in shaping public opinion than, rather than appeals to emotion or personal belief. In other words, in the society that we live in today, what has taken value over truth, what's taken value over people who would say, here's what you should do or shouldn't do, or universal, eternal truths, what's taken value over those things is how you feel, emotion, and Personal, the key word there, personal belief. Your truth and my truth. And I believe this is what this comes down to. And I want you to hear me when I say this. 
is that an abandonment of meaning, an abandonment of truth, really comes down to this, an abandonment of God. When a society abandons God, the obvious implication of that is that you abandon truth. When a society abandons the idea of an authority figure who can tell you what, how you should or should not live, again, the obvious implication of that is an abandonment of meaning, an abandonment of truth. When all your, your, your theology or definition of life tells you is that you're just here by accident, that you just live, that you die, and excuse me for being frank for a minute, but you just rot in the grave for the rest of your life, again, again, the obvious implication that it doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter what that church down the road tells me what I ought to believe, because I'm not going to have anyone to answer to anyway. When you abandon the idea of a God, you abandon the idea of meaning. This is a biblical principle. In Judges 17, 6, here's what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. There's no authority. And here's what happened. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the greatest question because it's a question regarding meaning. And meaning is important. Amen? Meaning is important. We believe God has created us for purpose. God has given us truth in which we ought to live by. It's a... It's a question regarding meaning. Here's a second reason why it's the greatest question. is because it's a universal question. It's a universal question. In other words, we're all asking it. We're all asking the same question. Now, I'm assuming that when you get up in the morning in your devotion time, you don't get up in the morning and say, God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm assuming that your salvation wasn't so formal that, for example, when Pastor JP gets up on the stage on Sunday morning and said, lift a hand and say this prayer that you didn't say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But every one of us are asking the same question in some way, form, or fashion. We search for meaning in everything and everything that we do. And this is not a bad thing because God created us for purpose. Again, you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created us for purpose. It's a question we ought to be asking, God, why am I here? One of the most Googled questions ever is, why am I here? Why am I on earth? We all search for meaning. We may search for it in, in, in our career, in being a mom or a dad, or in the amount of money we have in the bank, or a nice car, a nice house, whatever it is. We all search for meaning. We all know that there is more to life than what we can feel, hear, and touch. And God has created us for a purpose. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, this is not one of those verses that you stitch on a pillow at the house, you know, or hang on the refrigerator. But here's what he says in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here he gives us a glimpse into the human heart when he says this. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. In other words, we know the truth. We know the truth. God has written it on the laws of our hearts that we know the truth. Again, we know that there's more to life that what happens to us when we die, we don't just end. Our life doesn't just end. There's more to life than what we can see, hear, feel, and touch. There's more to life than this. We know it, but Paul says in our unrighteousness, we suppress it. Why? Because if we admit that there is a truth, we also might have to admit that that truth has something to say about our unrighteousness. If we admit that there is an ultimate goal in life, that God has called us to something that God has called us for uh, as, as, as a way to live, we might also have to admit that my life has not been aligned to the goal for which God has created me. If we admit that there is meaning to life and God has given us purpose and God has given us meaning, we also might have to admit I have not been living according to that meaning. 
It's a universal question that every one of us are asking because it's a question regarding meaning. And life has meaning. Amen, everybody? Life has purpose. So he comes to him and he asks him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him in, in Luke 10, 26. And here's what he says. Jesus responds with another question. And he says, what is written in the law? What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus points this man to the law. Why would Jesus, why would Jesus point this man after he gets done asking a great question? Why would Jesus point this man to the law? We know because of the testimony of Scripture that the answer to life is not the law. We know because of the testimony of Scripture that what leads to life is not the law. And if anyone ought to know that, that the law doesn't lead to life, it's, a test, it's, it's the point of Scripture himself. It's the subject of Scripture himself. Yet it's Jesus who points this man not to grace, not to mercy, not to what he's going to do here soon and bringing in redemption and righteousness for humankind, but Jesus points him to the law. And here's why I think Jesus points him to the law. And this is so important for us to understand. It's because before we can understand what leads to life, we first must have to understand what hinders us from life. Before we can understand what leads to life, we first must have to understand what hinders us from life. And this is my second point. It is the greatest dilemma. The greatest dilemma. So he comes and he asks the greatest question. But before we can understand the, greatest, the answer to the greatest question, we first must have to understand the greatest dilemma. Now, I want to hear me when I say this. The law, as understood in the Old Testament, maybe even specifically the Ten Commandments, the law is not the problem. The law is not the issue. The law is not the hindrance. Here's what the law is. The law reveals the issue. The law reveals the problem. The law reveals the hindrance. And here is the issue that the law reveals. It's me. It's us. It's you. The hindrance to life is not external things. The, is, the hindrance to life is our own selves. That's what the law reveals. The law is good. The law is holy. The commandments, they're just. They're good. That's why when this, this guy answers Jesus, and Jesus says, what does the law say? And he answer, answers him and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Because the law is holy, the law is just, the law is good. But when I, when Patrick looks to a standard that says, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, I don't know about you, but the first thing I understand is I have not loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I certainly have not loved my neighbor as myself. The law is holy, the law is good, but the law reveals how I am not holy and I am not good. Here's what Paul says in Romans Chapter 3, sticking with the same thing, what we just read while ago in Romans 1. He says, now we know. Now we know. Now he's speaking, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience. And I find it so interesting that Paul would begin by saying, we know. They're familiar with the law. They're familiar with the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And he assumes that what he's about to tell them, they know. He's not giving them some new revelation. And here's what he says, we know that whatever the law says, the Old Testament, the, the t whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So the law is holy, the law is good, and the law says something about us. And so we ought to want to know what does the law say about us. And here's what it says. The law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. That every mouth may be stopped. You know, my wife and I, we've been married for three years. And um, 
Sometimes you and your wife may not do this, but sometimes we don't have arguments. We don't have disagreements, um, fusses. We have passionate disagreements. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and I'm just going to say I love my wife. She is amazing. She's serving over her kids right now. I have a fantastic wife. She's very talented at having passionate disagreements. She's good. <laughs> I'm halfway joking, but this is a good illustration. What I've learned in three years of marriage, and husbands, you may, not, you may know this, is if there, if there is a small chance, very small chance, that I'm ever winning one of those passionate disagreements. <laughs> if we're ever disagreeing and I feel like I'm proving my case, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, I've got it right and I'm proving my case and, and I feel like I'm about to justify myself. One of the things I've learned in three years of marriage is if, if, if it feels like I'm winning, my wife, man, she will bring something in from left field, something I've done in four or five years, and say, yeah, well, you remember when you did such and such? How many know what I'm talking about? And here's what happens when my wife brings that up, because most of the time she's right, and I'm the one in the wrong. Is here's what happens, is my mouth is just stopped. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> you ever been there before? You're just like, you don't have anything to say, especially, maybe you remember this as a kid, uh, talking to a parent, like, I deserve to go out with my friends, and I have a right to go out with my parents tonight. And it says, you don't have a right to nothing. I pay the bills. I pay for that car. I pay for the gas. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and you're stopped in your tracks. That's what I imagine what Paul is talking about when he says the law, it stops us. And we have nothing to say. And the standard says, live this way. Do this. And you look at it and you say, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I want to give you two points today uh, under the greatest dilemma. Two points. The first one is the law says we have not lived up. We have not lived up. Listen to what Jesus says in the greatest sermon maybe ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That sounds like good news, but then he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It won't happen. Again, like Paul, Jesus is speaking mainly to a Jew Jewish audience here, and they would be very familiar with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees of that day. People who, people who took the law so seriously, so seriously that you take a command, for example, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, they would have counted their steps on the Sabbath day because if they took too many steps on the Sabbath day, that might count as work. And so these Jews, when they hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the people who count their steps on the Sabbath day, you're not going to go to heaven. I can only, only imagine they were dumbfounded. Buddy, I ain't going to heaven if that's the case. I'm not going to make it. And he ends in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, therefore, be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, but Patrick ain't perfect, and I'm not going to make it. If the standard of the law says I have to be perfect, it must, it must mean that what it's revealing to me is I have not lived up because we cannot live up. And Martin Luther in the 1500s, the Protestant reformer, the, really the father of the Protestant Reformation, he gave a really good example of this. And he likened the law as to a mirror. And he said the law is like a mirror. You look in a mirror, and one of the first things you understand when you look in a mirror is you check yourself out, right? Make sure everything's good. Make sure your hair's in place. Make sure you brush your teeth. Make sure you got no dirt on you or something like that. And if you do, if there's something wrong, you look yourself in the mirror, you fix your hair. And, 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 and you get that piece of dirt off, whatever it is. That's what the law does. Now imagine, 
if you take a mirror, you look in a mirror, and you see your hair is messed up, and you go, man, I need to fix my hair, and you just take the mirror, and you just start. That'd be nuts, right? That'd be insane. Why? Because the law reveals what needs to be done, but it cannot bring what needs to be done. It cannot bring it. The law tells you that the law tells you that you need rescuing, but it cannot give rescue. It cannot rescue. The law reveals that you need grace, but it cannot give grace. It cannot give it. And we cannot do it. And this is the second thing that the law does. The law says we have not. Secondly, the law says we cannot live up. If there is a goal to life that God has called us to, and he has called us to it, the second thing we have to understand is that we cannot live up to what God has called us to live up to. We cannot do it. Paul continues in Romans 3.19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, listen to this word now, no human being will be justified, justified in his sight, since through the law, and here's this mirror, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, will be justified in his sight. Now here's what happens in our story today. He asks the greatest question. Jesus says, what does the law say? He says, love God, love people. Jesus says, do that and you'll live. And here's how this lawyer answers, because he's smart, he's a lawyer. And he says, but he desiring to justify, there's that word again, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. And here's, here's what 27-year-old Patrick Sawyer from nowhere, Mississippi, believes is the human dilemma of, of us all. And it is that we are in an endless cycle of trying to justify ourselves. We're in an endless cycle of trying to justify our existence, to find meaning in things beside God. We may not do that by the law. We may not do that by the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments may not be hanging out our doors. We exit and say, I'm going to live by that today. That's maybe not what we do. But there are things in life that become laws to us. And we try to justify our existence by those things. We try, again, we try to justify our existence maybe by the amount of money we have in the bank, by career, by a promotion, by, by, you can even do it in ministry. A lot of times when you preach or you sing, you go off stage and your whole life is defined by failure or excess depending on how you did. And here's the problem. In the rare cases that those things work, in the rare cases that we do find, that we do find significance in the things of this world, we always have to go back. Why? Because it cannot justify us. It cannot give us meaning. It cannot give us purpose. We're in an endless cycle trying to justify ourselves, and we cannot do it. In the 1800s, there was a pastor by the name of G.K. Chesterton, and um, this, this reporter sent out a question to these pastors, and he asked the question, what is wrong with the world? Seems like a relevant question. <laughs> If you've turned on Fox News or CNN lately, but you can very easily say, what is wrong with this world? Right? He sent out, he sent out a question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton famously responded, and he said, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? The only answer that I can give you is this, that I am what's wrong with the world. That I am what's wrong with the world. And that is the place, I believe, where the law wants to raise. And by the way, this sounds like really bad news, and to some degree or another, it is bad news, because good news has to invade bad spaces. But it brings us to humility. To say, you know what, the problem, the main problem, the problem that I can change at least, doesn't begin with external factors, but begins with inside of me. And so, so we're so used to saying, well, if, if this person would change, or if we could elect this person, or, or if this politician would pass this legislation, or if this family member would start treating me correctly, or if they would do this or do that, then my life would be okay. But the law says, no, 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 no. It begins not with them, but with me. That's the place where the law wants to bring us.
I'm going to ask the team to come on back up as we close today. So it's the greatest question, the greatest dilemma. And he says, desiring to justify himself, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And Jesus responds by telling a story. And I'm just going to say, I love Jesus, but sometimes he can be frustrating to talk to. This guy asks a really good question, and Jesus responds with another question. Then he asks, who is my neighbor, and Jesus tells a story. You kind of just want to be like, would you answer the question, Jesus, right? In John chapter 10, he, uh, Luke chapter 10, rather, he tells, he tells a story that I think all of us will know. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. I want to read it to you, and then we'll close. He said, man was going down from Jerusalem. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, Jesus is such a good storyteller, now by happenstance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and the more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Here's the question I want us to ponder today. It's not the greatest question. I've already given you the greatest question. But he says, Which of these three do you think proved, proved to be a neighbor with the man who fell among the robbers? And here's the tendency I believe that we can make, and this is so important is that when we read stories like the Good Samaritan, we, again, like I just talked about a while ago, we can make it a law unto ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should pull moral principles from the story of the Good Samaritan. We should strive to be the Good Samaritan. The problem is, is we, when we only read the Bible through the lens of what we ought to do, we can become the hero of every story. This is what I'm supposed to do. And the problem with that, of course, is being the hero of the Bible is a burden that I cannot bear. I can't bear it. I strive to be the good Samaritan, but I'm going to tell you, life is so much more than that. And many times when I, when I read this story and I look back over the course of my life, I don't relate to the good Samaritan who's living so selfless. A lot of times, can I just be honest with you, a lot of the times I'm a selfish and I have sins and I have failures that I need to account for. And I'm like the dead man on the side of the road, half dead, needing rescuing, needing saving, and needing redeeming. That's why, by the way, Christianity is such a religion, not for, not for winners, but really for losers. Not for feel like people who feel like they have their, their lives together, people who feel like they don't have their lives together. People who... Just feel like, man, I can never get over this addiction. I can't do it. And if you've ever been there before, if you've ever been in a place where you just feel like, man, I cannot do this. I've tried over and over again. Let me tell you what Christianity is all about. Let me tell you what it's all about. Because if it's true that we're half dead, here comes a Pharisee. Here comes a Pharisee, which represents religion in our lives. And here's what religion does for us. Religion sees us, and religion passes by on the other side. And here comes a Levite, which represents, of the law, which represents the law. And the law sees us in our situation. It can tell us we need rescue, but can't rescue. It sees that we need grace, we need mercy, but can't give grace and can't give mercy. And here's what the law does. 
Here's what all the things we put our hope in and faith in, here's what they do. They leave us on the side of the road and they pass by on the other side. And here comes a Samaritan, an outcast, a social outcast. This lawyer, Jesus knew when he's telling this story, this lawyer who's asking this question wouldn't even associate. The Jews don't even associate with Samaritans. They are, in their words, half-breeds. No one would ever expect that a, sad, that, that a Samaritan would come to the rescue of someone who's left half-dead on the road. But Jesus says, here comes the Samaritan. And he sees him. And he rescues him. And listen, not only does he rescue him, he provides for him. I want you to know today, just as the last point, you probably could have guessed it, but Jesus is, he is the goal of life. And this is the greatest hope. If I'm right that the law says it's holy, the law is holy, the law is just, and it reveals to us that we need rescuing to put our hope in anything else, to to look at anything else as the goal of life is going to leave us shorthanded. He is the goal of life. He does rescue. He does redeem. It's Jesus. I thought it would be appropriate to, to end today just reading a scripture to you. I've quoted Romans 1 and 3 so much today with Paul, and I thought I'll just end it here. End it with what Paul says in Romans 3. He just got done saying whatever the law says, it says to us under law. Every mouth may be stopped. whole world are held accountable to God, and we're not going to be justified by our works. And then he says in Romans 3, verse 20, he says, but now... I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for but now moments. My life is a result of but now moments. This church is a result of but now moments. Come on, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. Amen? But now, yeah. But now the righteousness of God, the goodness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. You've heard this before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There we are dead on the side of the road. How dead on the side of the road needing rescue. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you've ever felt like you hadn't made it, if you ever felt like you couldn't live up to the standard for which people, our God, our churches, our religion calls you to live up to, this verse right here just ought to be the verse of 2020 for you. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified. We are justified. In other words, we, we don't justify ourselves by the things that we do, but now justification is something that happens to us, to us, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is now who God put forward as a propitiation. That word literally means, Pastor JP just talked about it, it literally means mercy seat. God put him forward as a mercy seat. Which, which gives us the image of the Old Testament, which J.P. was talking about in our ministry moment, when the high priest who would make atonement for the sins of the people each year would go into the holies of holies and would use the bloods of lambs and goats to make atonement. And they would have to go back year after year, time after time. Why? Because it was not sufficient. And here comes Jesus, the better high priest, the greater high priest. And he comes in, and like no other high priest does, He becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the sacrifice. And now our lives are dependent and based on not the blood of of goats and lambs, not animals, but on the blood of Jesus. Come on, I don't know about you, but this is the best news in the world. This is good news. 
He is the goal of life. My hope and my prayer for us as we go into 2020, and just as we were singing about a while ago, we believe the best is still yet to come. There are some huge things as a church that we're believing for, and I'm sure there's huge things as, as, as for your family and your home that you're believing for. If we're ever going to reach it, we're going to have to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the goal of life. Man, can you bow your heads and close your eyes today? I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you. God, thank you that even though we could not live up and we have not lived up, God, you have lived up for us. You've done what we could not do. You died the death that we should have died. God, we thank you that we stand on a firm foundation. And I pray for each person in here today, God, as they move into a new year, looking at new goals, looking at new resolutions, that everything that we do would flow out of the fountain of living water. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Be sure to visit us online at summitchurch.tv or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at summitchurch.tv.